Chapter 21 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 The Indian and Mental Poise. On a trip made recently from Yuma to the Salton Sea, down the overflow of the Colorado River, I found occasion to watch my two Indians in contrast with four white men of more than ordinary intelligence and ability. In some important things the Indians lost nothing by the comparison. Indeed, several times I called the attention of my white companions to them, and to certain characteristics which are by no means confined to them, but that belong to most Indians, and urged their emulation. Some of these will form the subject of this chapter. One member of my party was a reverend, a missionary. He was a fine, open-hearted fellow, whom we all liked, but every once in a while, indeed I ought to say frequently, he would make suggestions to the Indian to go here or go there, which finally called forth, from me, a forceful rebuke. Let me explain the situation fully. When we came to the place where the Colorado River left its banks and entered a mesquite forest, its waters were naturally much divided. As we did not know where each current led, and how soon it would spread, so as to render further progress in our boats impossible, it was a situation that called for great knowledge as to determining the course of the best and deepest current, and quick decision for as we were carried along among mesquites, a few moments of indecision meant being thrust into a mesquite tree, perhaps, where cruel thorns spared no one, because of his indecision. Reader, do you know what a mesquite is? Its proper name should be Me Scratch. If you come within ten feet of one, it verily seems to reach out for you and scratch you somewhere. Imagine your thorniest rosebush multiplied by fifty and all concentrated and condensed into one tree with thorns much longer, far more pointed, and with poison lurking on the end of them, and you have a not very much exaggerated idea of the mesquite. Now, to have our missionary friend bawling out all the time, Better go this way, or better go that, was both annoying and useless. So I finally told him I had brought the Indian because I knew that he knew a thousandfold more of such a current and how to get through this wilderness of mesquite than I did. And, said I, as far as I am concerned, I should feel it was an impertinence for me to make even a suggestion to the Indian. He knows where I guess, and yet as you know, I have had far more experience in this kind of thing than you have. Don't you think it wiser for you to add a little more silence to your possessions? He was, as I have said, a royal-hearted fellow, and he took my rebuke in a manly Christian way, for a few moments reflection showed him that what I said was wisdom. Now, while these wild and foolish suggestions were being made to the Indian, what did he do? It was most interesting to me to watch him. Instead of replying and arguing with a lot of vehement words, he smiled quietly, looked at me to see if I approved of the suggestion, 
and when he saw my absolute impassive face, went on following his own course. Had he been a white man, or like most white men, he would have shouted back that he was going some other way, or called his adviser a fool, or informed him that he knew his business, or some other equally agreeable thing. This serenity of mind in the Indian is often called impassiveness or stolidity. It shows how little the critics have known of the Indian to speak thus. They are as sensitive as children, morbidly so sometimes, but they have the self-control not to show it, and in matters like this, where they are sure their knowledge is superior to that of their adviser, they go on with a proud disregard of criticism or censure. This calmness was also shown in the face of danger. Several times we came to places where there was both difficulty and danger. We had three boats. In the first were Jim, the Indian, and myself, seeking out the way. In the second, Indian Joe and Mr. Louis Francis Brown, business manager of the Burton Holmes Lectures, and in the third, his reverence and two others. When we came to the thrilling places, Jim soon learned that he was to take the responsibility, save where there was time and opportunity to discuss matters with me, and with a dignified self-reliance he made his choice, and then awaited results. If they were unpleasant, as they often were, there was no murmuring, no shouting, no remonstrance. He took things as they came, and made the best of them. The second boat followed, and there was little more said there than in our boat. But from the third came a constant babble of voices, cries to do this or that, shouts of warning, remonstrance, and fault-finding. I could not help contrasting the demeanor of the Indians with that of the civilized whites, and wishing that the latter could and would learn the lesson so clearly taught. The quickness of Jim's observations and his decisions were remarkable, and I wished my children, and others too, might have gone to school to him for a year or two. He saw where the sandbars were that I could not see. He could tell which way the wind was blowing, when to me it seemed to be blowing several directions at once. He was generally able to tell where the largest amount of water was flowing, and only two or three times did he make a mistake so that we had to turn back. And when those times came, there was no grumbling, no murmuring, no finding fault. He accepted the disagreeable inevitable just as easily and readily as he accepted the pleasant. This silence and serenity in the face of annoyance is a very pleasing feature of Indian life to me. What is the use of fault-finding and complaining over disagreeable things that cannot be helped? I have just had an example, and he is but one of scores that occur to my mind, of the opposite spirit shown by a very proud and haughty member of the white race. We were on the car together, coming from the east. The first time he had a meal in the dining car, he came back furious. The chicken was cooked two or three days ago, and was weeks old to begin with. All the provisions were equally bad, 
and the service was abominable, and the charges infamous. Then the speed of the train came in for censure. They did things differently on the New York Central or the Pennsylvania, forgetful of the fact that those roads run through quickly populated centers and have a passenger patronage ten times as large as is possible to the western railways that pass through unsettled and barren regions. Then, though it was perfectly delicious weather, he had to kick against its being warm and disagreeable, and so on ad libitum until I was sick of him, as was everybody else in the car. In twenty-six years of association with the Indians, I never met with one such disagreeable grumbler. The white race retains that characteristic practically to itself. If things are disagreeable and can be changed, the Indian calmly and deliberately goes to work to change them. If they are unchangeable, he serenely and silently bears them. It is more manly, more agreeable, more philosophical. Time and again I have had white men with me on various trips who needed to learn this simple and useful lesson. They made of themselves intolerable nuisances by their whining, whimpering, and complaining. Those of my readers who care to read chapter 15 in my In and Around the Grand Canyon and the story of the Britisher on page 18 and onward in The Indians of the Painted Desert Region will see that I know of which I speak. And these are but two experiences out of many similar ones. Yet I have been with Indians again and again in places of distress, deprivation, and danger and in all my experiences have not heard a half-hour's unpleasant words. Once I started to explore a series of side canyons of the Great Grand Canyon. My guide was Sin Yi La, an intelligent Avasupai. We had a most arduous trip, ran out of water and food. Our horses gave out, and we had to catch, saddle, and ride unbroken steeds, and finally he caught a wild mule upon which we placed the pack. The horrors and anguish of that trip I have never written, yet there was not a suggestion of complaining from Sinila until I decided to leave the canyons and go across the desert to a certain spot where he did not wish to accompany me. Even then he merely stated his case with little or no argument, and when I proved obdurate, refused to accompany me, and in fifteen minutes we parted, good friends, he to go his way and I mine. Another time, as recorded in my canyon book, I was caught in a marble trap with Waluthama, where it seemed impossible that we would ever escape. The Indian's calmness was almost too much. He was almost as resigned as a Mohammedan who believes in fate. Yet, though I remonstrated with him for his despairing attitude, so that we eventually got out, I believe I would rather have that bravery of despair which dares to face death without complaining or whimpering than the fault-finding, Why did you bring me into such dangers? Or, Shall I ever get out of this horrible place? That some white men indulge in. When, on the Salton trip, 
we came to the beginning of the most dangerous part where I had been told we should go fifty miles in fifty minutes, and there were many rapids which would dash our boats to pieces, and where undermined cliffs, forty, fifty, and more feet high, were likely to be suddenly precipitated into the river, and might fall upon us and our boats, and send us to distant destruction. When I told my Indian of these dangers, he calmly looked me in the eye and answered my question. "'You afraid to go, Jim?' with a counter-question. "'You afraid?' And when I said, "'No,' and answered his further, "'You swim?' with a "'Yes,' he immediately replied, "'All right, I go.' Of course, I do not wish for one moment to suggest that this virtue of courage is not the white man's. For love of home and country, white men will go to death with a smile on their lips. But in work which the world does not see, where men are simply paid two dollars a day wages to face danger and possible death as a matter of course, this I have found rare with the white man, and very common with an Indian. The facing of danger and death is part of their everyday life. It calls for the exercise of no special virtues. Strong in body, daring in mind, fearless in soul, duty must be done, and done unhesitatingly, regardless of whether danger or death are lurking near. I am free to confess this large bold faith in life and the supreme pleases me, the man who is always seeking to guard his own life, who refuses to run any risks, who never goes except where all is safe, may be a more comfortable man to live with, but, as for me, I prefer the spirit of the man who dares and trusts, the man who does the unsafe things because it is his duty to do them, and who faces death and thinks nothing of it. The man who is prodigal of his strength and courage and faith is the man who saves them. The man who is constantly watchful lest he overdo, who refuses to run any risks, who would rather run away than dare, is the one who, in the end, will be found short in manhood and worthy accomplishment. So I emulate the Indian in these things, and seek to be like him. This prodigality and strength in work calls for more comment. Labor unions are making one of the greatest mistakes of their career in restricting the full exercise of a man's energy. In limiting his daily output, they are bucking against that which every man should strive to possess, viz., the spirit of prodigal energy in work. My Indian would row all day and after a few hours of especially hard work, I would ask if I might not relieve him. "'No, like him,' was his reply, invariably. He liked his work. It was a joy to him. What was the result? A body of tested steel, lungs equal to every demand, muscles that responded to every strain, eyes as clear as stars, brain quick and alert because of a healthy body made and kept so by hard, continuous labor. 
We are told that the Indians are lazy. It is not true. Some few may be, but the Indians of the Southwest do their work heartily and well, and with a prodigal energy that is as novel and startling to most white men as it is educative and suggestive to them. As for me, I have learned the lesson. When I reach a station and have time, I walk to my hotel and refuse to allow anyone to carry my usually heavy grips. I seek for the physical exercise. Many a time I arrange for an arduous exploring trip in order to compel myself to great exertions. I know that when I get started I must go on, and in the going on, though I get very weary, I know I am developing power and hoarding up health, energy, and strength for future use. A few weeks ago I started with a comrade for a few hundred of miles of tramping and riding over the Colorado desert, up mountain trails, through waterless wastes. My part of the journey was shortened by circumstances over which I had no control, but my assistant and artist took the whole trip, arduous and exhausting though it was, and I envied them and regretted my inability to go along. Another thing my Indian helpers have taught me. That is a prompt readiness to obey in any service they have agreed to perform, or anything that comes legitimately in the course of their work. There is no holding back, no remonstrance, no finding fault, no crying out that they were not engaged to do this. They perform the service, not only without a murmur, but with a ready willingness that is delightful in this age when everyone expects a tip for the slightest service. This comes from two things, viz. a strong healthy body which responds willingly to any ordinary demand upon it, and a healthy state of mind which neither resents service nor wishes to measure every expenditure of energy in a monetary balance. We are making a grand mistake in basing our present-day civilization upon material wealth. What is there in it for me should be more than a query applying to mere cash. What is there in it of service, of helpfulness to my fellow man, of helpfulness to myself, of increase of my own strength and power? The men who are relied upon by employers and by the nation are not the men who have selfishly sought their own monetary gain. There is no doubt that such seekers often seem to gain, and do really gain, a temporary advantage, but it is not a real advantage. It is an advantage of pocket gained at a loss of manhood, physical, mental, and spiritual, and that man who is not worth more in body, mind, and soul than his pocket can never be much of a man. End of chapter 21